You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, and uh, Bonnie, I'm going to use Bonnie as a, my sermon, my opening message this morning. So um, I remember Bonnie over at the cafe, and she came in, and she'd been coming to church for a while. Jim McMahon had invited her, and she was getting coffee, and I was just chatting her up, and she said, well, I read the Bible this week. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, which part? And she said, all of it. You remember that, Bonnie? And I about fell out of my skin. I thought, wait a minute, can you even read the Bible in a whole week? Like, is that physically possible? I had to go home and Google it. Like, how long does it take to read the Bible? If you Google it, there's an answer, by the way. It's about 70 hours, So, which is crazy when you break it down. Literally, if you read the Bible, 15 minutes a day, you can read the entire thing, Genesis to Revelation in one year, just 15 minutes a day, right? Talking about a fantastic New Year's resolution. But anyway, and so the natural question after I kind of picked myself up off the floor, like, so what'd you think, right? You read a book, you know, you want to know how it was? And I asked her, so what'd you think? And she said, I don't know about that book of Revelation. That's a pretty crazy, wild book. I remember exactly what she said, and I remember laughing. I'm like, yeah, I think so too. That one is kind of out there. But uh, you remember that, don't you, Bonnie? Crazy. Well, this morning, I'm going to share with you out of the book of Revelation and, you know, kind of charting the last two or three weeks that we've been walking through. We looked at uh, two or three weeks ago, we looked at the prophecy, uh, Christmas Eve, Eve, actually, that morning. We talked about the coming of, of Jesus. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, um, and, and how God promised the sending of his king, his son Jesus, into, the, into this world. And, and we celebrated that over Christmas. And then the following week, last week, we talked about the prophecy in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would not just come to this earth, but that he would die on the cross. And actually, we didn't talk a lot about it, but Isaiah 53 talks about his resurrection, that he would suffer and he would die for our sins. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about the prophecy that that same King Jesus is coming back. He's coming again. And so turn with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. And we're going to turn to the very end of the whole story. Now, each book in the Bible is a, a separate book in and unto itself, and they're all put together. So the book of Revelation, you know, in and of itself is a book, but it is significant that the last book of the Bible, we're going to look at the very last chapter of the last book of the entire Bible, and we're going to look at the very last things that, that God has given us to focus on and to think about for our life. So especially this morning, as we think about that there's a day coming when Jesus will come back and the world as we know it will completely and forever change for the better for many and for the worse for many, I want us to realize that that has huge implications in our, our life today first. So read with me, if you would, to pick up the context. Look at Revelation 22, starting in verse 6. The Bible says this, And he said to me, this is John the Apostle. He's he'd been sitting there seeing these crazy visions. And if we think that reading this book is crazy of all the dragons and all of the beasts and all of the crazy stuff going on, imagine John visually seeing these things, hearing these things. It blew him away. And so he says this. He says, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. In verse 7, Behold, this is Jesus talking, I am coming soon. 
Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And very simply, he says, worship God. John, after just being overwhelmed, seeing all of these, hearing these words, uh, seeing the, the, what was revealed and unveiled before his eyes, the, the, the revelation, the re, which simply means the revealing, you know, it's, if, something, if something comes new to you that you didn't know, it's a revelation, and what is revealed to us is the coming of Jesus. The curtain is pulled back. In many ways, the curtain is pulled back in a way that it wasn't the first time when he came. When we shall see him in all of his glory and all that he fully and truly is, the curtain is pulled back not just on future events, but on, our, on the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And John, overwhelmed in that moment, fell down and began worshiping that angel, which seems odd to us, but that's how overwhelmed he was. I want you and I to recognize this morning what... Knowing that Jesus is coming back, truthfully, it could be in 2019. It could be in January 2019. The Bible tells us it could be at any time. In fact, three times in this chapter, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Now, if God tells us something one time, we can bank on it. But He tells us something three times, we absolutely had better pay attention and bank on it. And so, knowing that Jesus is coming back, what does that mean how we should live today? First thing I want you to recognize is it means that we should live worshipfully. Worshipfully. God had just revealed to John all of these amazing things that was going to happen. And he instinctively and appropriately, rightfully so, fell down and began to worship. And in that moment, he worshiped the wrong thing, which reminds you and me of how easy it is for us, even in our life, to worship the wrong thing still. John knew the truth. He saw the resurrected Lord. He knew that he was not to worship anyone other than God himself, but he was overwhelmed in that moment. And so the angel gives advice to John, hey, after seeing all of this, don't be worshiping me. You need to worship God. So knowing that Jesus is coming back soon, tomorrow, means that you and I should live our day today worshiping God. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that you need to be sitting in a church and we need to have a worship service every day? You know, we'll have a 5 a.m. service for you every morning and you need to come and make sure you're in here on time, kids dressed, teeth brushed, so we can get you in and get you out before work. You know, that's not going to be realistic. But truth of the matter is, worship is way more than us singing songs. It's way more than us opening even God's Word and reading it. Our whole life is to be an act of, of worship. You know, the Bible tells us that, that whatever we do, whether we're eating or drinking, we're to do all to the glory of God. That means our literal very breathing, everything that we do, whether we're fishing, whether we're surfing the internet, whether we're at work, all of it is to be an outgrowth, an expression of our life as an offering, as a, a sacrifice to a, a God in heaven. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that we should give our bodies a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God. That's our reasonable worship, our reasonable uh, act of service before God. So how do we pragmatically do that? When you get in your car tomorrow and you head off to work, 
It's hard to feel, you know, especially on a Monday morning, especially on a morning, Monday morning of the first full week, you know, after some holiday breaks and all of that, to feel good and excited and, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I'm going to worship God today at work. That's, that's not an easy task. So what do you do? My recommendation to you is before you go to work tomorrow, or if you go in tonight at midnight or whatever your shift may happen to be, I want to encourage you to begin making a habit of saying, God, I'm dedicating this work to you. You see, really the difference of it is not what you do, but it's why you do it and who you do it for. Do you do it to just make your boss happy? Do you do it just to pay the bills? Do you do it to keep your, you know, your mortgage company off your back and to keep the car you know, loan off your back or put food on your tables? Absolutely. But you should do it for something more than that. And so that is your little work should be, God, I'm coming as a servant for you. I'm, I want to serve you in my heart today. So I want to challenge you to dedicate your work before God. Commit your family unto God. Commit everything that you do, whether it's at the Little League fields or on the soccer fields, whether it's coaching a basketball game, whether it's watching a basketball game, literally everything in your life, make a commitment before God and worship Him. If you will be intentional in specific little moments, regularly in your life, before you know it, your whole life begins to be reoriented and changed because your life then becomes a, an offering unto a God in heaven. So dedicating that time, to spending some time periodically taking inventory in your life. How many of you need to do some uh, spring cleaning in your house after the holidays? Some deep cleaning, you know, some just like, boy, there's a lot of stuff that I need to do. You know, our life is like that a lot as well. So periodically take time. God, I probably got some crud hanging around in the corners in my life. Lord, what do you want to deal with? Do that in your life. Not only that, but spend time with God literally every day. Don't go beyond a day without taking time to say, God, you're important to me. God, I'm here for you. God, I want to hear from you. Don't go past a day without opening God's word. Definitely don't go more than two days without saying, God, what do you have to say for me? You see, if you take that daily time to hear from Him, you take that moment, maybe the beginning of the week, or maybe that once a day as you go into work, committing your time and that life, your life to God, and as you weekly or regularly gather together to worship God, to be with God's kids, before you know it, your whole life begins to be flavored with something way bigger than yourself, something way more important than the mundane of life. Billy Graham noted at one point in time in his ministry that in the days of Noah, that when the flood came upon Noah, that, uh, that God was so angry and upset with the world that He flooded the entire world, that people were preoccupied with things. They were preoccupied and focused on, on living their regular daily life, and they did not have time for God. Those things can be said of us today if we're not careful. So John, after seeing all of this, we especially should have in our mind, Jesus is coming back. It should cause us today to worship our God in heaven. Now, before I give you the second thing that it impacts our life, I want us to actually look at what this is going to look like when John comes back. Read with me, if you will, in, in chapter 19 of Revelation. It'll be in your Bible. 
Uh, it should be uh, on your screen in a minute. I want us to see this picture. This is crazy. Jesus comes back on a white horse. Now, I'll tell you, some people take this very literally, and some take it very metaphorically. And there's godly people, godly men and women on both sides of the how to interpret this that, that I respect and, and value tremendously. I tend towards seeing this more on the literal side. But regardless, everybody who loves God and believes His Word knows that Jesus is coming back, and He's going to come back as a conquering king. Look how Revelation 19 describes this. John is sitting there. He says, then I saw. So he's watching this in front of him. It would have been more overwhelming than just watching a video screen. He would have seen this in 3D. He would have seen it in full effect, hearing and smelling and all of that was going on in front of them. And he says, I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is Jesus, by the way. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Jesus came the first time to redeem us from sin. The second time He comes purely to judge the world of its sin and to make war against those that stand against Him. And it says in verse 12, And His eyes are like a flame of fire, a purity, if you will, and a penetrating look into the hearts and souls of, of people. And on His head are many diadems, many crowns, symbolizing that He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. This is not his own blood from the cross. This is the blood of him vanquishing his enemies. I want us to realize that Jesus, the first time God came to this earth as a sweet little baby, if you will, in that manger, in that, that, that feeding trough for animals, the second time, he comes with a sword. He comes to destroy, to conquer, to rule. And it's so graphic that his, his white garment is already stained, dipped in blood of those that he's conquering. And it says in verse 13, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, certainly angels, very likely uh, those who are his followers as well, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will, look at the graphicness of this. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We could keep reading, but I think you've got the picture. Jesus, when He comes again, comes in full victory, full disclosure of all of, his, uh, of all of His wonder and of all of His righteousness and His godliness. I want us to view it this way. When Jesus died on that cross and He rose from the grave, He purchased and secured full victory over sin and death in the grave and over all of His enemies. The battle was won. We just are living in that time from that moment to when we experience the reality of that. Have you ever watched a football game or a basketball game? You know, let's, let's take basketball. It's in the you know, beginning or middle of the fourth quarter and the team's up by 30 points. And you're like, this game is over. I mean, this other team just has no chance of winning. I mean, it's done. And especially as the, you know, those last few minutes begin winding out, both teams know the, the, the end result. Everybody watching knows the end result. We're living our life within those last few minutes of the game. 
when the victory has already been won, the battle is over, it's assured and completed, but we're just are letting it play out till the clock runs out until we enjoy the full victory afterwards. That's the moment at which we are right now in our life. It's tough for you and I to see it that way because we're living in those minutes, if you will, and our whole life expands you know, over all of those years. But Jesus won the victory. When Jesus comes back, it's really not as much to secure the victory as it is to declare the victory and finish it all the way through. The game, if you will, is going to be completely finished. And He will come back in righteousness and impurity, putting down all sin, putting down all who would disobey and dishonor and disregard His word. And He brings in the finality of the whole world order. Both heaven and hell become real after that. So those realities mean that you and I today should worship and recognizing that, God, you are amazing and all that we have is offered up to you. Second thing that means, means you and I need to live godly, not just worshipfully in our life, not just making everything that we do an act of worship, but we should live in a way that is godly and honoring to Him. Look what the Bible says in verse 10. And He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteousness still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. Second time he's told us that. Bringing my recompense, my reward, if you will, with me, to repay everyone for what He has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This world started with me, and this world is going to end with me. Jesus tells us that while we're in these minutes of the game playing out, which for us is our lifetime, we should live in a way the righteous should do righteous. Everyone who has surrendered their life to Jesus as Lord of their life, He tells us to live righteously. When the Bible says to let the filthy be continuing to do filth, if you will, the, the dishonorable to live dishonorably, the ungodly to live ungodly, it's not, Jesus isn't encouraging it. He's not, hey, go ahead and party up and live as you want. What He is saying is, is there's a dividing line here of how people are going to live their life. And you had better figure out where you're going to land on that. And if you are a follower of Jesus, make sure that you are pushing forward in your life to honor Him and live godly before Him. You see, the point is this. When you and I begin to, when He begins to fade in the background, there, we're, we're, we are waiting for Jesus then it becomes easy for you and I to live differently. When we lose that focus, it's easy for you and for me to not pay as much attention about how we're living our life. Have you ever waited for a package? You know, I love and hate technology. I, I, I love it. There's so many things that are wonderful and I'm thankful for it. And then I can be that old guy sometimes and like, wow, life was so much simpler. I didn't have to worry about this. Why do they have to be able to tell me exactly where my package is that I order? Because now I feel compulsive to find out, is it in Arizona? You know, where is it? I'm waiting on one now, and I found out it's in Massachusetts. And it, you know, I just, you know, you go online, I'm like, where is it? Okay, it's not here today. They give you that little window, you know, when it's going to come. And it just drives me insane. But that's the way we should be with Jesus. We should be, I wonder if it's today. As I was pulling in today, and I hadn't had this thought all week as I've been studying it or whatever, but it just hit me. I thought, 
You know, sometimes I look at my life and I think, well, I've got a lot of years past me. I don't have as many in front of me as I have past me now. But you know what one cool thing is? All of us who know Jesus this morning can say that we are one day closer seeing our Lord. We're one day closer when we get to experience all that God has for us in eternity. And that conscious thought should today focus our lives, put a, a, an invigoration, if you will, in our heart, a yieldedness to our God to want to live honorably and godly before Him, that our lives matter before Him. You see, living a Christian life isn't getting fire insurance. Well, yeah, I surrendered and I trusted Christ long ago. You know, kind of like, well, I got that T-shirt. I got that little trophy in my case, you know. The truth of the matter is if Jesus really has saved and changed your life, there's a hunger that he continues to put deeper and deeper within your soul, a love and a desire to follow him and to be with him. And part of that is to obey and to honor Him. I love this. I skipped by it a minute ago, but the, the passage in these verses, if you can't get it on the screen, don't worry about it. But listen to what the Bible says. In verse 7, I read it. Jesus says, I, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It doesn't say blessed is the one who knows the prophecy. It says blessed is the one who keeps the prophecy. You know what I notice with most of us as Christians when we think about the end time stuff? We want to know what's going to happen. And you know where God puts the emphasis? I want you to keep and obey all the things regarding what's going to happen. You see, God cares about our action and our activity way more than what little things that we know in our brain. And He tells us that these truths should impact our life that we should, they are things to obey. That's why when Jesus left the earth the first time in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he says, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe or to keep and to do all things that I have commanded you. Jesus didn't say, teach everybody to know stuff, make sure everybody knows the theology. He didn't say that. He said, make sure everybody obeys, adheres to, keeps, does the stuff, the things that I've commanded. Make sure that it, those theological truths, those truths of my word, the truths of the reality, not just go into your ears and into your mind, things that you understand. They don't even just go into your heart to be things that you believe. They go into there, but they then come out your pores. They come out in your hands, in your eyes, your mouth, your, your tongue, your, your lips, your feet. Do. So what God is telling us this morning, guys, is knowing that Jesus is right around the corner of our life should challenge us today to give our all to honor Him and to obey the truths that He's told us, not just in Revelation, but all of the book. If you find in your life that you're struggle, you're struggling to kind of keep that edge sharp in your heart, I want to challenge you to look to the future and think about Jesus coming back for you. You've probably lost a focus there in your heart and allow that to challenge you. Third, third thing I want you to notice, not only should we live worshipfully, we should live godly, but John, and as revealed by God in heaven, tells us that we should live expectantly. We should live expectantly. He says in verse 17, he says, The Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, and the Bride, talking about Christians, the church, 
say, come, talking about Jesus, come Jesus, and let the one who hears, who hears this book, say, come as well. Come, Jesus. There's something in our heart as the church that we join the Holy Spirit, a yearning, come. Just as in your heart when you're waiting on that package or you're waiting on someone maybe to return home or to return from, from active duty somewhere, and that in your heart, maybe you saw somebody over the holidays you hadn't seen in a long time and there was such an expectation and anticipation in your heart of wanting to get together, that's the yearning that God puts within our hearts to say, Come, Jesus, come. The Holy Spirit is saying, Come, Lord Jesus. And we join Him because we live with that level of expectation. And then the Bible says something that turns that coming, if you will, turns it around the other direction. And He says in verse 17, And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. You see, when we live and we have in our mind and our heart such a focus and an anticipation of the coming of Jesus again, it puts a, a desire in our heart to help others around us to know that same life-giving message that we experienced. And God tells us, we're in that, those last few minutes of the game where Jesus is coming soon. And he's telling the world, if you are thirsty for something that is going to make a bigger difference in your life than what Christmas present you got, than what relationship you think is going to make things better, than whatever you pin your hopes on in this world that we have all done time and time and time and time again, if I can only get this, I'll feel better. If this can only happen, things will be better. If this will happen, then this will work. And time and time and time again, we put our, our hope and our trust in a boat with holes in it and it begins leaking and we begin sinking and wondering what's happened. When we finally get to that point where we're thirsty for the water that provides eternally for us, the things that will satisfy us to give us purpose, to give us a true and genuine hope, the Bible tells us we live in this moment where God is urging everyone who has that hunger to come to Jesus to take of that satisfying life that he has that's without price. It's free, in other words. It, it didn't come free because Jesus died on the cross. It didn't come cheaply, but it's free to you and me. We don't have to pay for it because somebody else did pay for it. So when you and I think about Jesus coming back again, it should put a fervency in our heart for our friends, for our neighbors, for our family, for our coworkers, for the people around us. Guys, this is no joke. I mean, chapter 19 talks about the realities of hell when Jesus comes back to rule righteously, to bring with righteousness. Everyone who stands on the wrong side of eternity who's not surrendered their life to Christ, when He comes back, that end game, it is done. It is over. There are no second chances whatsoever. And those who have surrendered their life to Jesus Enjoy eternity with, in heaven with Him. It, that begins now when we, we trust Christ as our Lord. We begin to enjoy and experience Him in our life even more and more. But it really comes to fully happen in our heart when Jesus comes back again. So you and I should be thinking about Jesus could come today. Who am I world 
really needs to know Him. Maybe some of you have heard and listened to the truths about Jesus, and maybe you've just kind of said, well, maybe tomorrow, well, maybe another day, well, maybe another day. I tell you, there's going to be a generation alive that's going to think, well, I can do this tomorrow. And they're not going to have tomorrow. Nobody that ever died in a car crash thought that that was going to be their last day. Nobody, there's plenty of people every year in our country, in our world, that die. There will be millions of people that die in 2019 who think and are convinced that they're going to have another Christmas and another New Year's, and they won't. So this sobering reality should challenge us to say, I need to take care of business with me for my life to be where it needs to be and surrender my life to Jesus. And when you know Him, you should take that step to say, who else in my life? We should be committed to not only praying for them, engaging them, loving them, serving them, talking to them, inviting them, but doing all within our power and asking the God of heaven to work in their heart because God wants to save people. That's what He desires. He wants... He gets glory from that, and He rescues souls out of all of that. As we looked last week, God doesn't want to punish people. He wants the punishment to be on Jesus. But if you don't accept that forgiveness and that salvation, there's no other recourse in his, uh, for Him as a just God but to bring the full justice upon those who have sinned against a holy God. Fourth thing, not only should we live worshipfully, godly, live expectantly, wanting Jesus to come back in our heart to create that love and desire for Him, but also to create a, a focus on other people around us. The fourth thing is that we should live with grace. We should live every day and today with grace. Look what the Bible says in verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Third time He told us, we must be hard of hearing. We must be a, a, a child that's difficult to, to pay attention. And John says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And the last things that he says in all of the Bible, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. I want us to realize that even though we are so looking forward to and our hopes ultimately are in heaven, that God doesn't just leave us with gloom and doom on this earth now. God says, guys, there's grace in your life today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's grace. God's grace available lavishly upon our life. If you know Jesus is, is your Lord and Savior, you can look back at your life and see the grace of God and moment after moment after moment after moment in your life. And practical things and spiritual things. I thought a little bit about this. Actually, I thought a lot about this week. I remember when my first daughter was born, Anna. I was 20, I think 23 years old, 24 years old, 23, right around there somewhere. Uh, I know the birthday, it was December 3rd, right? So I was there, 92. And Susan was not yet nine months pregnant. In fact, Anna was born about six and a half weeks early. When you're 23 or 24, you're just a little bit idealistic in life, okay? I don't mean that for those of you that are around that age, and that's not a criticism. It's just reality. We're all there, right? But you, you, how many of you are older than that know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and her water broke like a week and a half or two weeks early before we knew that it happened. How that happened, well, I won't go into all the medical stuff. But long story short, she ended up in the NICU at Albany Med. And uh, I'll just, let's just say that's not at the age of 23, 24 what I was expecting or ready to deal with. I was expecting to bring my little girl home around Christmas, great Christmas present, you know, and find out she gets swept away and she's in the NICU and has an IV in her forehead and we can't bring her home. And everything was okay. This was just because my wife's water broke so early they had to put her on antibiotics and all of that. That was a little bit overwhelming in the moment. That was a bit bigger than life. And then my wife trying to feed and take care of a baby and we're being commuter parents. You know, she stays at the hospital, we're going home and you feel like, you know, everything in you is like I'm supposed to take care of this kid and I can't, you know, we're having to... I look back at that, that was really hard. That was really hard. Are there worse things in life? You bet. But that was hard in that moment. Can I tell you that God was gracious to us? Looking back now, so gracious to us in that moment and how that all played out. I fast forward to another child of mine when Nathaniel was born. When the doctor, I went to cut the umbilical cord, the doctor held it up. He said, see this? The umbilical cord was in a complete knot. He says, I didn't put that there. I said, really? Nathaniel had done a loop-de-loop and had tied his cord in a knot when he was inside mama. And I said, is that a problem? He said, he squished a little bit. He said, had it been any tighter, it would have been. You know, all the blood and nutrients flow through that. God's grace. God's grace when I didn't even know God was being gracious. You know, every birth is a mom and a kid passes through moments of life and death in those realities. God just so gracious in the middle of that. When Karis, my next one, was born, she came out blue, was not breathing. And in that moment, I remember the doctors and medical staff and the nurses that were there, they were panicking. And when anybody in the medical field panics, I panic, right? And they whisked Karis away. They took her off the corner where I couldn't see her. I didn't get to hold her. Like, no, this cutting the umbilical cord, no happy smiles. Like, they were, they were moving fast and they were scared. And in that moment, she wasn't breathing. Uh, at all. And I literally in that moment, as I leaned over Susan and just wept, I felt the grief that I could never have felt before at a level I'd never have sensed that we're going to lose our baby. And I prayed to God in heaven for the life of my daughter. Well, Karis made it. God's grace in the middle of that trauma in that moment that I had no idea was happening. When my next daughter, Chloe, was born, her birth went well. But as a newborn, we brought her home, and uh, she was born in December, and I think it was either somewhere around New Year's or January, but still a newborn little kid. We had a sickness going through our home. I mean, you got seven kids total. Like, you're bringing every germ home from everybody under the sun, and, and it was a fever and something going on. And, well, Chloe got it, and her fever spiked. And if you're a nurse, you know that you've got to deal with little babies. They could have spinal meningitis, so we bring her in. The only trouble is in the hospital, we were in Potsdam, and there was a blizzard outside. I mean, I could barely get to the hospital, and because we're talking, you think your hospital, the hospitals around here are little or questionable? You move up north when there's only like 10,000 people in the whole town. They couldn't do a spinal tap on her to check her for spinal meningitis, and the ambulances, the snow was so bad, wouldn't transport her to Watertown. So the doctor was scared to death, feeling like that, that she had to do a spinal tap on my little baby. And, and watching her try to get that aligned when she hadn't been doing them, because that was not what her hospital did, but feeling like she had to. And watching my little girl's spine just jello. You know how little babies, they, they don't sit up. They're little, 
bend and to where she couldn't get her right to where she put her on a laundry cart. You've all been in the medical ho hospital rooms with a little lid, you know, and they put like the dirty clothes in with the caster, the wheels on it. And like, here, Sean, hold this. And I'm like, you're about to stick a needle in my little baby's spine like this? No. You know, after about the second try, just as a parent, I had to say, wait a minute, you know more medically than I do? But stop. We're not doing this. Can't you do a test? Like, my other kids are sick. Like, they've got a fever. They don't have spinal meningitis. Chances are. So God was gracious. Here's why I'm saying this. God was gracious not just in the medical stuff, in the crazy things that happened, but he was gracious to even me to make a decision as a father that, like, I don't know enough to how to what to do with all of this. Grace. God is so gracious that you and I live in this moment, in the last minutes of the game of all of eternity, which is our full life. But when you know Jesus, God's grace is just superintending every area of our life, everything, through our decisions that we make, to things that happen. I'm convinced if you and I saw the things that could be happening to us, that we would never leave home. You know, that God's grace to keep the other driver away from you that would have plowed into you. I remember the drunk driver a few years ago that I followed home on 5S who literally was going head on into another car on the other side of the lane and course corrected and ended up going to the ditch in front of me, in front of me. I mean, what had I just been a few milliseconds in front of that car? It could have easily slammed into me. But God's grace, just when you don't even realize it or know in your life. And then I think about God's grace to deal with our sin. That when you and I struggle, we're like, God, I'm stuck. I don't know how to get past forgiveness. I, I don't know how to get to that point of forgiveness, to get past unforgiveness. And God, I'm stuck. God, would you help me? And we struggle with that. Grace, when you and I have been betrayed by people that are so close to us that we've invested so much trust in that the pain and the wounds go so deep beyond that. And God's grace regardless of where anybody else, regardless if it is everybody else in our life, that God says, I'm still giving you grace to face and to walk forward and to deal with all the realities of life. When relationships go where we didn't expect them to go and things happen that we don't expect in our idealized world, all of the gloom and doom and the challenges of life that can seep in on us, I want you and I to realize that God's Grace is there. I'll tell you how this practically hit me this week. The last two, two days I have been battling a well. We've got two. I always have home issues. You guys have been here a while know that, right? So here's my latest one. I thought I had, I thought I had experienced all the water issues I could ever experience. But uh, let's just say cow manure in the field behind you doesn't go well, no pun intended, when it goes into your well. Um, it's not a good thing. And uh, I have two wells, and the one that we rely on to wash all of our clothes in, and actually in the wintertime when our other well dries up, which is usually weekly on the weekends, that would be the supplemental well that we would shift. And uh, with all the rain that we've had and the frozen ground, all the runoff from that field went into my second well. And I'm laying in bed two nights ago, and I'm just like, God, I don't know how to fix this problem. I, what kind, I'm like, this is thousands of dollars. Like, I, I don't even, we can't even wash clothes right now because I can't wash the clothes in another well or the whole water will dry up and you know, I won't even be able to, to have water to drink and shower. And I'm just like, God, what do we do? But can I tell you that I knew in that moment that just 
God just, His grace. Like, I don't know how this is going to be okay, but it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Uh, by the way, I've learned how to do it. Chlorine does wonders and well, and we're still battling it. So, But I laid in bed, and I just thought, God, I prayed it. In fact, Susan, I prayed, God, I have food in my stomach. I've got a bed I get to sleep in tonight. I've got a roof over my head, a warm house. And I've got water to drink. Everything's okay. And besides that, your son loves me. He died for me. You see, when you and I know that Jesus is coming back, it's not just something that we believe is a fact of history. It's something that should change the way we view life today. Today. I don't know what your challenges are that you're going to face in 2019, but if you know Jesus, you've got more than enough grace that you need to meet whatever those challenges are. Whatever decision you've got to make that you don't know what you've got to do, whatever crazy thing you've got to face, whatever awful, difficult, painful betrayal that you go through, whatever. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. The grace that God loves us, even when we don't deserve it, that's what grace is, even when He gives us what we don't deserve, we deserve punishment, but He gives us grace, that's toward you and me today. So this morning, I want to challenge you to focus on the grace, that hope. You lose focus of that grace, you lose all hope. And once you lose hope, you're, you're cooked. Anxiety, depression, worry, addiction. You're going to end up in the ditch in a million and one things. So I want you to focus on the grace. This morning, in, a, in just a minute, I'm going to call up our ushers as I pray. And this Lord's table that we celebrate, the body and blood of our Lord, it's a tangible reminder of the grace that God purchased for us 2,000 years ago. Purchase was made then. The battle was won then. The grace that you and I experience now is because of all that Jesus did when He died on the cross. We're playing out our life in those last minutes before He comes back. And we should look both backwards to the cross and forwards to the coming of the conquering King and know that God's grace is toward us. So I want to urge you, as you think about the supper today, if you know Jesus is Lord of your life, you've surrendered to Him, and the best that you know, you're trying to live for Him. You're not perfect. You still sin. I do. But you're living in a way that honors Him, and in your heart this morning, worshiping Him and thanking Him for that. I want you to focus on that incredible grace that He has for you. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord, I would encourage you to let this go by and, and do what God tells us to do. This is meant to be for people that remember a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't give us a relationship. It reminds us of the relationship we already have. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I encourage you to talk to God today and say, God, help me. I want to know you. God, I, I help me to understand my sin. Wherever you are in all of that, whether it's more stuff you need to know, or whether you know enough that you just need to step forward and get past your pride, but I urge you to focus on taking that step of surrendering your life fully to Him if you don't know Him. So wherever you are today, I'm going to pray, and as I pray, ushers, would you come up to be ready to pass this out? And we're going to, I'll bring up our worship team as well, and we'll celebrate this together. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for whatever needs we have in our life. 
whether it's spiritual challenges, overcoming sin in our life today, you've purchased freedom for us. You freed us from sin and death that we can follow and love you and know you and, and have victory over the addictive sins and habits that we get into. And God, whether it's that grace or it's the pragmatic things of life, overcoming wells and whatever other issues, thank you that you loved us that you've promised to be with us, to take care of us, to secure us in eternity, and to secure us here now on this planet. Thank you that we live in the minutes of the final closing of the game. Father, I pray that that would be a reality in our heart. Thank you that Jesus died. And we live between those two moments of when he purchased it and when it's realized. So Father, as we celebrate these things, thank you for your immense love and grace to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.